Hi, guys, and welcome back to The Climate Lawyer, a podcast about the business and law of climate change for lawyers, people who work in the industry, and the climate curious. I'm your host, Rich Kim, an American lawyer at Clifford Chance, Germany, and member of our firm's Climate M&A team. Today, we're going to talk about first principles, basically different ways to think about climate and also how to stem the tide of existential dread for that. I'm joined by two very special guests, um, Yaron and, and Michelle. Would you guys like to briefly introduce yourselves? Sure, Michelle. Why, why don't you go first? <laughs> Thanks. Uh, I'm Michelle Williams. I'm one of the partners here in the Washington, D.C. office of Clifford Chance. I'm also a member of the firm's ESG board. And uh, I'm Jerome. I am uh, a partner in our Amsterdam office, and I'm also um, the uh, chair of our global ESG board that Michelle just spoke about, and I'm the firm's global senior partner. Great. Thanks very much for joining. So I'm admittedly not sure what to call this episode. I'm debating between peeling back the climate onion or cracking the climate nut right now. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but well, you're hungry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm maybe not the best at titles, but um, the, the gist is that I'm going to have a few questions for you both that are getting to parts of climate that are, are pretty complicated. I mean, in, in general, of course, the topic's very complicated. And then based on your responses, hopefully we'll arrive at some kind of basic principles or takeaways. So does that work for you both? does for me, and I, I like both titles, Rich. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for the vote of confidence. Um, okay, so our, our first question gets to this weird kind of cognitive dissonance. I think if, if you talk to people working in, in the climate industry, a lot of them are pretty hopeful. But when climate change is talked about in general, it's pretty much um, doom and gloom. So here is where we have all the answers to any climate question definitively. Um, which one of these views is correct? Uh, well, Rich, to give you a definitive answer, they both are in a way. That's not very definitive, is it? Um, so on the doom and gloom bit, look, it's understandable that people are worried. And you know, the reasons to worry are very visible. We have extreme weather events. We've seen them all over the globe, um, from Australia to California from the African continent to Europe. Uh, I'm from the Netherlands. We've seen floods this summer in the Netherlands, in Germany, in Belgium, and really a very, very um, devastating floods. And we've seen the IPCC reports describing consequences of exceeding the one and a half uh, grade increase. And energy crisis emphasizing how much the world still relies on fossil fuels. So, you know, there's a lot of negative news out there, but if you think about it, you know, that's not how we're going to change this just by the doom and gloom. People need hope. People need, we all need to see uh, a way forward. So I am a, uh, you know me, Rich, and Michelle knows me, I'm a glass half full type of guy. So I'd far rather look at the at the positives. Uh, Rich, your last, your last episode was around COP26 and around whether it delivered. And, and my conclusion on that is you can look at it various ways, but I think it did deliver. So I'm hopeful. And the reasons to be hopeful are maybe less visible to the general public, but they're arguably, in my view, more compelling. So, for example, the prices for renewable energy 
have dropped immensely over the past decade. So they've now become commercially viable and a real alternative to uh, fossil fuels. The amount of investments and talent moving into the climate space is increasing dramatically each year. And the number of realistic different solutions is becoming really vast. So, you know, my first principle here is that the narrative of climate change is on balance more hope than it is doom and gloom. And I also think that hope is what gets us to positive outcomes and doom and gloom, you know, just gives people the idea there's nothing that we can do about it, but there is lots that we can do about it together. Yeah, thank, thanks, Ron. And, and, you know, I was, I was trying to think about this, that climate seems to be basically fit into this overall pretty terrifying picture that people get um, from the news and, and social media. I mean, when it comes to, for example, the economy or democracy or the pandemic, I mean, when we think about climate and net zero, we can barely get people to wear masks or get vaccinated in, uh, in uh, different countries. Um, but, I, you know, picking up on what you're saying, when you really dig into the, the climate industry and what's going on, I think you see that there are a lot of forces at work to um, make change and make progress. And we're a long way from decarbonization, from electrification, but there's a lot of forces at work to, to get us there. I agree. There's a lot of forces at work to get us there. And I think, again, COP26 is a step in the right direction. And I think we need to give people um, the, the understanding of what we can do together to get us there and not just talk about doom and gloom. Um, and uh, I think we should be hopeful. And uh, I am hopeful, even though sometimes, you know, if you just read the press and see all the images, it can get you down. Uh, but that is not a route to a solution. Great. So existential dread officially vanquished. Uh, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Well, and on that, it, I mean, it doesn't need to be an all or nothing, right? I think the, the discussion so much becomes that you have to do everything. And we like to call out, you know, individuals who are trying to do their best to make a difference in this space. And if they, you know, fly in their private plane, we like to call them out as sort of a, aha, you know, you're not being, you know, you're not fighting, you know, combating climate change. Um, and I think that just, I mean, it sets people up for failure if it has to be an all or nothing. And it doesn't. Right, right. So true. Okay. Um, so next question. Everyone knows that that climate change is, is bad. <laughs> um, when people think about solutions to climate change, though, it's things like um, everyone planting trees, uh, buying electric cars, eating plant-based meat, or, or maybe there will be some miraculous technology that's going to fix it all. So uh, how do you both think about the, the solutions for climate change? Michelle, you, you want to start on the solutions? Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's it's a lot of what we can think about, right? It's adapting. Um, it's looking for those opportunities to, to try and change. Um, and you can focus on different sectors, and there's ways to make small steps to make a difference. Um, An interesting example, and I, I know, Rich, you've got some other ones as well, was that there was this big push around straws, right, plastic straws. They were, they for some reason in the U.S., they became sort of the thing that everyone wanted to replace. And then there was a lot of pushback. Apparently, Americans love straws. Who knew? Um, and so they were replaced with paper straws, which 
don't work. Um, and I happened to be eating at a restaurant the other day and they had a new plastic straw that was made with something called carbon air. So again, it's the idea of, yes, you can still have your straw, but let's make it in a way that doesn't pollute the environment, that isn't harmful to, to marine life um, and gets people what they need. I think, again, it goes back to the all or nothing. People, If people feel that they have to give up the things, in this case, straws, um, they're not going to be, they're not going to want to change. Um, but I know there's obviously, a, you know, a, a much bigger scale, things like emissions uh, and some of those sectors. Maybe you're in, you wanted to speak to those. Well, you know, there, there's been a lot of focus on the energy sector, obviously, but I think companies are increasingly shifting towards other sectors. You know, you have industrials, transportation, agriculture, buildings. Um, obviously, we've got electric vehicles coming up, but also with things like green steel and cement. Uh, I think we see a big development or we expect a big development around green hydrogen and last but not least sustainable farming. You know, I mentioned COP26 and there's various layers talking about peeling back the onion, which I mean, various layers of COP26 and you can look at it from different angles. And one of the angles is the, you know, the coalitions of countries who who came together to to make certain resolutions out of the outside of the climate pact including for example with relation in relation to uh, methane emissions so that's agriculture that's that's farming that's sorry that's that's farming and and livestock um so you know food habits i think there's not enough attention on food habits and it's not easy for people to change their habits but actually by changing food habits and going to more plant-based has a huge impact so when people say what can i do individually well, we can fly less, you know, we can stop the cheap flights. I can fly from Amsterdam to Barcelona, return ticket for 25 euros. On the one hand, that's great, but is it great? No, it isn't. But actually changing food habits would have a big impact. Um, so I know we haven't even spoken about, you know, other other ways of tackling climate change, like, you know, carbon capture or removal. I don't think that's going to be the solution, but it all comes into the uh, into the mix. Right. And then, and then, of course, there's the uh, aspect of scale. So, you know, as a general rule of thumbs, material climate solutions are ones that would, re would reduce emissions by 500 million or more tons of greenhouse gases per year. So, you know, I think we should think about problems and solutions in terms of emissions by sector and by scale. Thanks. And I think what, what you're also both getting at is like this tension in a way between how people think about climate at a macro level, um, whether it comes to examining it by by sector or the the scale that we're talking about, which is you know also maybe hard for just your you know average person to just for anyone to grasp, versus like also at a at a micro level, the individual choices that that you're making. And I think it's it's fair to say when some when someone looks at oh well material climate solutions are ones that solve for 500 million tons of uh, CO2, or I'm sorry, greenhouse gases per year. Um, you know, what does it matter within what I'm, what I choose to eat or how I choose to, to travel? I analogize it to almost like your right to vote. Like it matters your voice within this framework. You, you decide for yourself what's, what's right. And then you try to um, convince people. You try to, you know, be part of this movement in society. You try to to bring this change about also in um, 
in your in your governments in your in your workplace and otherwise i think that it is really important people's individual role here yeah it is i mean rich if if let's say 20 cent, 20% of people in developed countries now in the in in the european union in the us and in asia pac and in many developed nations that are the biggest emitters would decide to eat you know 50% of their diet or maybe 30% of their diet plant based food and the impact of that would already be immense. So every individual contribution helps. And I'm not even talking about the way we use transportation uh, or other things we can do. So the idea that we as individual citizens cannot contribute to this because it's all too big is, is just wrong. Right. And, and I guess just to also cover the other side of it, it's not like we're saying that, you know, we're coming for your burgers, right? I think that was that was like the criticism of the the Green New Deal in in the U.S. or you know other kind of uh, climate legislation that it has this sort of you know restrictive. We're going to take away your your lifestyle sort of approach when actually we're talking about the climate future being a good thing, being a good thing in terms of the options that people have from a nutritional perspective, in terms of EVs, in terms of electrification, in terms of distributed generation. I mean, and, you know, for investors or companies in investing in this and making money from this and, and driving us toward this future, it's, it's like, don't threaten me with a good time. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Michelle, do you want to respond to that? I no, I mean, no, it's, look, and it's so true. And, and so much of what we hear is, I think those who want to oppose the changes do, they try to highlight those issues, right? Like, the, again, the government's coming for your burger. Um, and, and it's just not true. Um, and I think it's, un, it's an unproductive way to look at the issue. Um, I think sort of that defeatist attitude of, if I can't do, if I can't cure climate change on my own, why do anything? Uh, and I think getting people to understand um, so the small small decisions we make, I mean, people understand, you know, if you make a decision, it has an impact. Um, but seeing that through the lens of climate change, I think, is is something we need to keep doing and, and keep working on. And again, you know, let people have their burger, but, you know, have something else the next day. And I think everyone, you know, it's win-win. Right, like a, a both-end approach, both when we right. think about these macro and micro level. Sort you're of, biodegradable um, straw. You'll be good. There you go. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Rich, we have to find that approach because, you know, going back to your first question, just scaremongering and doom and gloom just makes people depressed or thinking they can't do anything about it anyway. And, you know, we've got to come up with a narrative that people understand why it's important and what they can do to help solve it. And we've seen with the pandemic, you know, certainly in the beginning, you can rally people to, to get behind change and cause and 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 but saying you know we need to change something by 2030 or 2050 it's also abstract and to talk about you know whether it's one and a half or two degrees you know it, it just doesn't resonate so how do you make it more palpable more real by talking also about the opportunities the opportunities for business the opportunity for economic you know uh, sustainable growth the opportunity for jobs and yeah maybe some lifestyle changes but not not you know, not coming for your burger, not for the worst or not, but, but changes. And, you know, some things will need to change, but they don't have to be bad. Yeah. And I guess sticking, and this is getting to kind of the, the, the next question, sticking with solutions at a high level and, and you know, the, the timelines also that you mentioned, um, Jerome, um, there's probably one particular mechanism that everyone focuses on, and that's 
commitments. So whether it's 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 governmental commitments or corporate commitments for net zero, um, the problem is that they're they're non-binding. Um, do you do you both think these commitments mean much at the end of the day? And, and if so, how? Look, I mean, you're absolutely right. And look, in the strict sense, these commitments are non-binding. Um, but when we look and see what companies are doing or what the government is doing or what uh, civil society and private actors are doing, is they are implementing them in practice. Um, and it's a little bit of the, you know, the peer pressure model, right, for companies. And I think they're really using it as a, to be a differentiator, right? Um, so for individuals who want to work at a company, they're looking at these factors. A company that's making commitments to being, you know, net zero, um, green buildings, um, and, and thinking about these issues, it's a way to attract talent. Uh, and in the US right now, we talk a lot about the war for talent and finding people who want to work for your company. This is a way that you can really set yourself apart. Um, but I think also for consumers, consumers you know, are, are deciding where they want to spend their money. Um, and companies, again, can use this as a differentiator. Even if there's no law or you know, regulation that requires them to do certain things, they're seeing it from a good business sense. Like a lot of things, we see the same in, in diversity and inclusion, for example, if you want to draw a parallel. Now on the government side, right, there, there isn't a clear enforcement mechanism yet. Um, you know, there's goals being set, there's legislation, you already mentioned the Green Deal. And, you know, and, and countries are sort of falling along different lines of how they want to, want to go about this. Um, and interesting in the US, there's been a recent discussion of tying ideas of climate change and migration to national security. And when you start talking about security and national security, you get people's attention, right? Perhaps more so than when you would if you were talking about climate change or the environment, because people understand that. Uh, and people understand that they want to you know, be safe and, and keep their families safe. And so I think tying it to concepts like that and understanding that these issues have that of impact, right? Whether or not it's migration of people because of climate change, uh, presents a threat um, within the United States, and people are concerned about that. So I think even though, as you say, they're not binding, I think they set ambitions, I think they set goals, I think they help companies differentiate themselves, uh, and I think they're a great way to keep the momentum going. Um, and wouldn't be surprised, honestly, if we do get to a spot where there are some more enforceable goals and requirements. Yeah, uh, I agree with that, Michelle, because you know, any company that's trying to hire new talent, the number of times they will be asked now when they're interviewing the candidate, it turns they turn it around and say, what are you doing about climate change? What is your role in society? And I think that's bigger than ever. And I think some of the companies which are the most polluting industries um, will struggle and struggle. And, and, you know, we find it as well as a global law firm. I mean, more than ever now when we're uh, involved in the war for talent and we're in the middle of that too. This is a big question that comes up. So I think that's right. And, and you mentioned consumers. Um, again, you know, consumers vote with their feet and the products they buy. Um, you know, what, but, but I think one of the issues there is pricing. I think there's a distortion of pricing because of subsidies uh, and, and trade distortions. I think the government can really play a role in taking away sort of the wrong incentives and having the right incentives. So that is really where government uh, is one of the areas government can really have have an influence. And you know, one of the big discussions again in, in, the, uh, in the climate conference in Scotland a couple of weeks ago, COP26 was around, you know, carbon pricing and putting a price on carbon, bringing in those externalities. So I think that is, that is really important. Um, and when it comes to corporations and even though there's no binding commitments, um, I, I heard uh, from an old timer who'd been to 10 of these climate conferences that 
at this conference in Glasgow, he saw more business leaders in this one conference than he had seen in the nine previous ones put together. So there's clearly a far bigger engagement from the world of business. And some of that may be just, you know, marketing and greenwashing. But I think there's really something happening. There's really a shift. And then talking yeah. about governments, Rich, I mean, mm -hmm. we've got the national defined contributions, you know, which is the obligations under the the, uh, the climate conferences to, under the Paris Agreement, was every five years, countries would have to say what they were doing to meet their targets. And that is now being changed to once a year by countries themselves. So, you know, when we go to Egypt next year for the next climate conference, countries will be required to update their uh, their plans and, and describe how they're going to meet their nationally defined contributions. So I think a lot of ha is happening in that space. Yeah, I I wonder if we can even if we can even go a step further to say that like actually some of these commitments that are like quote unquote viewed as non-binding are like in practice being implemented in a lot of ways. I mean, uh, Michelle, you mentioned before in like for governments at, at a legis legislative level. I mean, that's true in the US if you look at the bipartisan infrastructure deal or, um, you know, hopefully what we'll have with Build Back Better or at the European Green New Deal or, you know, even lawsuits against governments like 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 here in Germany or with, with, with corporations. I mean, yes, these may be non-binding commitments, but it's actually driving also a lot of like um, shareholder activism and it's driving also certain litigation around this in order to 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 meet um, goals that are that are set or to um, combat uh, greenwashing at the end of the day. No, absolutely. I mean, look, our the SEC and Security Exchange Commission here in the U.S., which is our primary regulator for listed and publicly traded companies, has been very vocal and active in this space um, and holding companies accountable. There, there was an interesting development where the SEC came out and indicated that it would be looking at not only the public statements and disclosures that companies have to make as part of their um, under our under our regulations and the requirements, but then looking at as well at the statements that they make more generally, right, in their sort of corporate responsibility uh, and comparing those uh, and saying, look, are you saying all of this sort of puff and fluff and nice things, um, but are you actually doing it uh, and holding companies accountable that are are either, you know, getting ahead of what they're saying uh, and not actually doing it. Now, you know, the, the flip side of that is we do, you know, you want to encourage companies to be ambitious and, and take strides and be the leader in these types of spaces. Um, and so, yes, set goals, set ambitions. Um, but I think the, the cautionary tale there is just to not get too far ahead of yourself uh, and make sure you hold yourself accountable, just like your shareholders are going to do when they bring a lawsuit, your employees are going to do when they challenge you, or your customers are going to do when they walk away. This is where the, the rubber meets the road, as they say. Exactly. So, okay, I think I'm, I'll then summarize what we've, what we've said so far. In the first question, I think the principle we're getting to is, is hope over doom and gloom. Um, the second was thinking about climate solutions at this macro and micro level. Um, the third is these commitments really are coming out in, in actual practice. And okay, moving on then to the fourth question. Um, when you when you read the statements about climate change, a lot of the focus is is on risk, um, the risk to business models, assets, and people, of course. 
how do you both think about risk versus opportunity um, in the climate space? Shall I kick off on that one? I mean, I think we're lawyers have a natural tendency to look at risk first. I'm a litigator, so um, you know, as is Michelle. I mean, our, our you know, we 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 think often in terms of risks and liabilities, etc. But you know, to stick with the theme of your your first question in a way, Rich, I think this is as much, if not more, about opportunity, and we need to look at it in terms of opportunity. So. For example, in our own, as a firm, in our ESG offering, if you would go to our ESG hub on our website, it talks all about value creation and opportunities. There's also a part on risk, obviously, because there are risks around disclosures, around greenwashing, around you know the liability risks, but a lot of it is around opportunity and value uh, creation. So, um, you know, I, I think the bigger incentive here is ultimately opportunity for the reasons we mentioned earlier. I don't know, Michelle, wh whether you agree or... No, look, look, I think risk is a helpful tool for us litigators, right? Because it's people understand risks. Uh, often you can quantify a risk, you can describe a risk, and you get the attention of those who need to make a decision, whether or not it's the board, whether or not it's the general counsel or head of compliance or the financial officers. Um, but I think you're right, changing that, shifting the conversation from, uh, yes, there's a risk. Here, here's what we need to do, either because we're required to or because we've said we're going to do. Um, but flipping the conversation and talking about those opportunities because there are, um, and you're seeing companies here that are, are early adopters and saw those opportunities early, uh, really leading the pack. Um, and so helping our clients understand where there are openings, where there's way to be, a, where there is a way to be a leader in this space, um, while also managing the risks. Uh, you know, there will always be some risk, but I think really transitioning out of the risk mentality and into the opportunity mentality uh, is going to see a lot of clients uh, really break through in this space. I think uh, Rich, you and I were typing, and I was, I was going to use it as an example, but it depends on the age of the audiences, right? You know, you can be Blockbuster, you can be Netflix, right? Um, and one innovated and changed uh, and was able is able to deliver a product now to customers. The other is, you know, has gone the way of, of many things. Um, so I think, again, it, it's opportunities here. The risk here is not seizing the opportunity. Hey, Michelle, I'm 55. I get your example. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I do, too. And uh, it, it's making me nostalgic for the old blockbuster days. But uh, yeah, that, that's that's a really perfect way to put it. That, I mean, this is the future in a lot of ways. And, you know, I, I guess the question is like, like, how can climate be actually a business strategy at the end of the day? Like, what does that look like? And you know, how can people, organizations, and investors be a part of that. Because I think if you, you really dig into it, the companies and investors that do climate well or do ESG well, for example, are really are doing extremely well too from a, a business and, and financial returns perspective. I think there's a lot of evidence for that. Yeah, I mean, we had the, um, you know, we had the, uh, Time of industrialization, and and uh, and then we've had the uh, the technology wave, but I think the and that's ongoing, obviously, with 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 AI and so on. But I think now the ESG and, and climate gives such a prompt for innovation and for new ideas, and and you know you talked about the infrastructure bill in the US and 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 opportunities that's going to create. But I think it's such a time for innovation, and we see such great ideas arising and. You know, I think um, uh, we'll look at back. We'll be looking back at this in 
in a number of decades and just say it was a time of great and positive change. No matter how sad I may I may be about the blockbusters that we lose along the way. Yeah, yeah, we'll lose some, but but you know we've we've gone through. I imagine you know people at the time of the industrial revolution lost a lot of the certainties as well. But um, you know it it brought a lot of good things as well. And now we're now we're having to, to turn a bend and and go in a different direction to uh, to save our planet and future generations. But it's going to come with a lot of innovation and opportunities. I'm sure. Thanks, and you know I think that we've basically been been getting to this, but. I mean, climate is is part of this broader ESG framework. I think that's really come through in a lot of what what you both are saying. And I mean, how do you how do you think about climate as as part of that that framework? I realize that's a it's a pretty broad question. Well, no, I mean, I think if you look at the especially the S, right, the social, and I think we mentioned you know tying environmental issues to social issues. But I think it's also important that. Um, especially for those of us in developing countries, that the the developments we're making and the strides we're making aren't leaving behind those who aren't able to access some of the new technology, um, new food groups, right? That sometimes could be priced a bit higher, and so making things accessible. So it's not a it doesn't become a class war between those of us who can take on those measures um, to fight climate versus those who want to but do for due to financial reasons aren't able to participate in sort of this new new climate economy. Um, so, you know, I think it's interesting. I don't think you can have the discussion uh, around environment without looking at those broader issues as well. I agree. What I find exciting about the ESG, and actually, I know I know the guy who came up with the acronym ESG. I think they were first going to call it SEG, and ESG sounded better. That was back in 2004, not knowing it would become such a ubiquitous term now. Um, but right. I think the exciting thing is that it brings the E, the S, and the G together and we see that in our firm as well by creating the global ESG board we're bringing together a lot of the knowledge we already had around environment around climate around carbon trading but also around social around human rights around DEI and then all the governance around that and it's really as Michelle was saying that's where it comes together that intersectionality so you know how does the E interact with the S and the G now that sounds pretty abstract but the you know, the, the, when we talk about climate and we talk about the energy transition, how are we going to do that in a way that we don't leave behind communities, that it doesn't become a solution for and by the rich um, and uh, the rich nations and rich individuals? And, you know, we're, we're actually launching a report on Thursday, which we wrote together with the Institute for Business and Human Rights and the CDC group in the UK around this concept called Just Transition, which is one of the as part of that language, that language comes from the Paris Agreement, the preamble, and uh, and was also a big part of the discussions in Glasgow or net zero for resilience. Now, how do we do it in a way uh, that we respect human rights and, and bring communities along? And if you look at it again from an opportunity perspective, you know, ESG and climate change in particular could be a big driver for social change as well. So, um, you know, let's hope that is the direction we're going and that's the way we need to go. Um, and again, you know, part of the climate conference discussions were around how are the developed nations going to help the less developed or the developing nations that have contributed less to climate change, but will be affected by it first uh, and more heavily than some of the developed nations. So, you know, I, I think, again, looking at the glass half full, it is a great lever and opportunity for positive social change as well. Yeah, I think basically what I mean, this is what we're 
really trying to do that we're really when we're examining client uh, climate really examining it also from this kind of uh social um and and governance perspective as well and, and like from that lens and you know i think also something that we're we're thinking a lot about seems to be this question of taxonomy like how to um really think about the applicable standards that that apply because that's a a very it's kind of all over the place right when it comes to different uh taxonomy standards like how do you rate that something is actually good from an esg perspective and that's you know i think that is a, ultimately a, a complicated question yeah it's a big challenge i mean you mentioned taxonomy in the i'm from the netherlands from the eu we have the uh you're in germany rich despite being an american you're working in germany i mean it's the we have the eu taxonomy i think that's going to be important we need to have get away from this sort of alphabet soup of 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 um you know uh, different different um definitions and and disclosure requirements and i think that's really going to help if we get to something akin to a uh, more global taxonomy which will be a challenge but uh, if the eu and the us and then hopefully the, the apac countries and others can can come together on that that would be a big a big driver thanks everyone for listening and um, please subscribe to to this podcast um, on our website or on your on your feed um, on your podcast app of choice. Um, you can email any questions or feedback to richard.kim at cliffordchance.com. And of course, follow Clifford Chance on LinkedIn. Thanks very much. Mm-hmm.